Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I am sitting in the stationery cupboard at the London Review of Books, not because we're hiding, but because I think this is where we'll get the best audio. And I'm delighted that I am here with the philosopher and writer John Gray. Many of our listeners will know John's work very well. He is one of the most interesting and challenging commentators, not just on politics, but if this doesn't sound too pretentious, the human condition. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast, John Lanchester, Mary Beard, and we hope to have some more soon talking about the state of democracy and the state of the world. As well as politics, the LRB has book reviews, essays about art, poetry and exhibitions. Whether you want to get a deeper understanding of world events or just get away from it all and read about Picasso and octopuses, the LRB will have something fascinating for you. John Gray has written a very wide range of books, including Straw Dogs, The Silence of Animals, and most recently, The Soul in the Marionette, which is about human freedom. And we may get on to human freedom a bit later, but I think we should start with politics, given that's our subject matter, though we always get on to bigger themes too. John, you wrote recently of Jeremy Corbyn and the political phenomenon that surrounds him, that this is, and I'm quoting you here, populism for the middle classes. And there's always a lot of argument about where populism starts and where it ends, but it's not usually thought of mm. as a middle-class phenomenon. Mm. So what, what exactly did you mean by that? Whatever populism is, and as you well know, there are many questions about the legitimacy of the very idea and, and what it applies to. I don't think it should be restricted to those sections of the population that for mainly political, but to some extent also cultural reasons, have been marginalised from the political process. I think there are some superficial symptoms of populism which Corbynism clearly possesses. For example, ecstatic mass rallies, a cult of personality, the use of vaguely defined but very enticing policies which are targeted at particular groups, though in this case not the poor or those who are mouldering in some derelict zone of the economy and society, but in this case, the very large numbers of graduates in a highly expanded higher educational system who are labouring under heavy debt. So it has some of the aspects of almost of a cult. It sees itself as outside the normal political process, even though, as we've found out in recent weeks over Brexit, it's very much part of the political process because all kinds of manoeuvres involving sudden radical shifts of policy and so on over Brexit and other issues, including the even the student loans issue, have happened in a matter of weeks. But it's nonetheless capable of generating the perception of being a movement which fundamentally challenges existing political establishments and elites. So in that sense, I mean, whatever populism may be and however vague or indeterminate a concept it, it, it is in political science or in common journalistic parlance. It does exhibit some of the clear features of other populist movements. One of the ways people sometimes try and define populism is it's the sort of democratic politics of betrayal in the sense mm. that the populist appeal is to people who feel that someone has stolen mm. their politics from them mm. and their control, mm. among other things, from mm. them. So in this case, if this is the, the populism of the middle classes, mm. 
who are the betrayers here? I mean, there are a lot of possible mm. culprits, mm. but who, in a sense, do you think that movement is directing its anger primarily against? Well, the populism of Trump and Brexit and of some of the European right-wing leaders and also some of the left-wing ones like Melanchon and others, they all have populist characteristics, seems to me to be definable, and this is my own view of it. I'll answer your question in the light of it in a moment. It's grounded in an attempt to repoliticize issues that were substantially depoliticized under a previous consensus. So, for example, the obvious one in the British case, but also in other cases, has been immigration. If all sections of the political establishment are agreed that uh, immigration is overwhelmingly beneficial to the country at any costs it's have are trivial or marginal or ephemeral and will be rapidly swamped by a rising tide of prosperity, that was the consensus for many years, then the populism of the right which raises issues of, of, of immigration is an attempt to repoliticize issues that have been pushed outside of the central political space or had been consigned to institutions that were supposed to be of our politics, that's to say which adjudicated rights or implemented policies that everyone accepted. So you've then got to ask the question, well, who then does Corbynite populism appeal to? Which set of resentments, which kind of angers is it, is it mobilising? Well, I guess part of the answer must be economic, which is that with a very large expansion over the last 20 years or so in the number of graduates and then the financial crisis of uh, 2007 and 2008, that group that large group, mostly middle class in its social origins, had not only suffered burdens to do with debt, but they'd faced a much more challenging labour market, stagnant incomes and wages and so on. And so part of their resentment was that no one was speaking directly to them about that. None of the three parties. Were. I think also, and of course this was a masterly exercise in political deception by Corbyn and uh, Macdonald and the others who planned the strategy, it was also an expression of resentment against the upshot of the Brexit referendum. So Brexit was a factor, and so by representing itself as a Remain party, when at the time it was a Leave party, at least as much of a Leave party as the Conservative Party at that time was, they were able to mobilise that resentment. And that's even before the changes of policy which have happened in the last few weeks. This leads me to another point which may make my view of Corbynite populism clearer. I see it as an extension of a Blairite strategy or a Mandelsonian strategy, which was a kind of Leninist strategy. In one of my few extended conversations with Blair, not long after he became leader of the party, I made the point that it seemed to me that for him, the key in his leadership of the party was not policies, but strategy and party organisation, which is a classic Leninist position. Policies come and go. There's instrumental. You change them overnight if you if you have to. What's really central is the party. And so the key phase in early Blairite Leninism was that they had to defeat the party before they could defeat the opposition. And Corbyn's creation of a mass movement and shifting the bias of decision-making from the parliamentary party, which is being increasingly marginalised, that was the whole point, to transmit power not only to Corbyn and his apparatchets but to extra-parliamentary bodies... That was all a part of this Leninist strategy. And, of course, by seeing it as continuous with a Blairite strategy, you can see that the policies that come out of it at any one time are not terribly significant. So during the election, it was a sort of very, very, very muted leave position overlaid by a kind of inscrutably opaque Remain veneer. Now it's become explicitly Remain, although 
looking ahead a little bit, it might be hard to pull off that trick at another election because um, seven, I think, out of ten Labour constituencies will leave. So it's a kind of hybrid, contrary to what many on the right say. It's not a simple reversion to the politics of the 80s. It has those older elements, and to that extent there is an almost cyclical re-emergence of the hard left, but this time against the background in which moderates have not done what Neil Kinnock and others did. There'd be no strong attempt to resist them. But uh, it has new elements, and the new elements are connected with this populist aspect, which is a mixture of the symptoms I mentioned earlier, together with kind of Leninist aspect, which is to select groups who will clearly benefit or who can be led to believe that they will clearly benefit substantially by supporting the party and infusing that appeal essentially to electoral self-interest with an intense amount of idealism and an intense amount of moral hope and integrity and all the rest of it. And the paradox is of a, a Leninist politics of authenticity. That's to say a politics of continuous shape-shifting on policies connected with the idea that this is new in the sense that it emerges from the heart or from deep principles and, and so on and so forth. And it's been remarkably successful so far. The next test will be the next election. And one of the most striking features of that, and you've touched on it there, is that it's also tapping into well, two big new divides in British politics that go beyond class, one of which is generational. Uh, it's obviously largely, not exclusively by any means, but largely driven by people under the age of... It's not just the very young, but under the age of 40 or 45. I was going to say that. It's not just... So it's, no, it's certainly not just the 18 to 24s, no. not least. No. You couldn't do so well as he did no. in the general election with that demographic, but also by the educational divide. Yes. It's yes. very much a movement of university graduates, yes. and it's a response to the massive expansion yes. of university education in this country, and then the issues like the accumulation of debt that goes with it. Yeah. So if, if we part the generational question for now, but that university divide question, again, it is striking. I mean, populism is an odd word to attach to it, the populism of the graduates. It's not as if I think they can be arguing that the less well-educated are the ones who've stolen their future from them. It, mm. it, as with all populism, you need elites to target. Yeah. It seems like a relatively recent phenomenon, but it's it's got deeper roots. Yeah, where, yeah. where do you think it comes that's from? That's a populist way of thinking, though, isn't it? It's that the masses are sort of inherently okay, but they're manipulated by sinister forces, in this case, the Daily Mail or whatever. I mean, to me, it's a childish view, because unless there was a deep-seated resentments and dissatisfactions, they wouldn't be mobilised. It's as childish as the paranoid style in liberal politics, which has emerged in the Democratic Party in the United States, which puts down Trump entirely to or largely to the Russians. I mean, there probably was extensive Russian intervention. It's even possible that at crucial stages of the campaign, it might have made the difference, actually, even to the final result. What it didn't do is create 40 million people out of nothing. I will make one point about the generational divide before we do go on to um, higher education itself, which is that a lot of the British discussion of this seems to me to be extraordinarily parochial, because in most of Europe, especially the Eurozone, for a reason which is pretty obvious when you start to think about it, people under 40 and even people under 30 and under 25 are much more likely to vote for and have, in fact, voted on a much larger level for radical parties, including parties of the far right. Mm. France, Austria, Germany now. But France is, this, in a way, the, the, the most interesting case because despite a disastrous campaign, Le Pen got 34% of the vote. And I think more than 50% of the vote for Le Pen and Mélenchon came from 18 to 25-year-olds. Now, why is that? Well... It's one of the reasons I'm sort of frustrated almost to the point, although I write a lot about it, it's, I think it's almost 
not worth bothering uh, by the, the, the parochial British debate is that it's talked as if it's a kind of an eternal or at least a, a universal verity that younger people will be deeply enamoured of the EU and won't take these radical positions. Well, it's preeminently the case in Britain and hardly at all the case in most of continental Europe. And one reason for that, a little bit of historical materialism here, or at least follow the money, is that there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that some older people deserted Le Pen in France because of her policy of leaving the euro, which they feared would lead to a period in which a new currency would drop in 20 or 30 percent of value. And these were people with significant assets, sometimes hundreds of thousands of euros in the bank. Whereas the young people who voted in large numbers mm. for Le Pen have no assets, have no assets to lose, so they don't get... So that's quite different from the British situation. So I think one of the things we should realise is that when we're talking about the British, we are talking about something which is quite exceptional. It's not to do with a universal generational war between liberal, high-minded, bien-pensant students and graduates and crusty, dying, senile, geriatric reactionaries. It's certainly not like that in the rest of Europe. That's not where the momentum of the far right comes from in Europe. It comes from very largely in many countries from young people, very largely, by the way, in places like Hungary, mediated by uh, new social media. That's how they're often recruited. So it's a new thing in many ways. What's really interesting in the French case is that, while that's absolutely true, Le Pen did get a lot of her support from the young end. And we've talked about this before in this podcast too. Modi, for instance, Mm. gets a huge amount of his support in India from young Indians. Very interesting. But Macron, it was an even more exaggerated educational divide in that case that whether or not someone had taken part in higher education was a better divider divider than generational Mm. or others. Mm. And Macron, who more or less hoovered up that educated vote, I mean, whether it can be sustained, I doubt. I doubt that too, because Because he hasn't done anything yet. And when he starts doing what he promised to do, which is labour market reform on a British model, that will be even more unpopular there than it was here. I mean, it'll be strongly resisted. It is already being strongly resisted, is it not? But it's a very deep issue, which I doubt anyone has thought all the way through this question of why there has been, why being a graduate or not being a graduate. It's also true in Trump, I think, to a large extent as well, is so important. And I guess numbers must be significant here, which is many of these countries, not only Britain, have experienced a very rapid expansion in in higher education. I have seen people writing about this in the British press saying, well, at last reason and enlightenment and common sense are going to dominate their politics because we've got all these people like ourselves who are thoroughly... As you know, I'm very critical and sceptical about a lot of recent political science and, and social science. And one of the reasons I fear is that the view of the world of these large numbers of people who've emerged from a radically expanded higher education system to find their economic prospects more restricted than they expected or wanted, the view of the world they adopt is that of academic social science of 20 or 30 years ago. If you think back, you know, cosmopolitan democracy, multiculturalism, Kimlicka, you know, all, I mean, all the kinds of things that were being mulled over 20 or 30 years ago have sort of emerged in a, in a more demotic form in politics. And the trouble is with these theories is that they're constantly coming up against phenomena which contradict or subvert them. And the result is a kind of cognitive dissonance, at least among people whose position makes some kind of close attention to actual real-world developments important. I mean, an example of that outside of politics is that you're old enough, and I'm certainly old, old enough, to remember when it was taught as a sort of axiom of social science that the whole world was on a path to secularization. You then have one or two um, dissidents like Gellner and some of his works, well, it's true except for Islam. 
<laughs> but it turns out that Islam isn't that singular because there's been a, a big revival, not just in state institutions, but more generally of, of religion in uh, in Russia. It's not just the case of old people. You, if you go into a church, you don't just find aged people. You find you know, quite a lot of young people. It's also true in Romania. And even in the American case, where there have been some signs of what we call secularization actually creeping in on a number of issues. On the other hand, there are very strong evangelical movements, and it's still, in many ways, very much the country that Tocqueville visited in terms of the extraordinary centrality of religion in um, in the politics. So that enormous change, and also the intense intents in China to control it and prevent it from re-emerging, where there's a large subterranean conversion to Christianity. Some have speculated that China could emerge 40 years from now like a kind of huge South Korea, in other words, the biggest Christian country in the world. That whole phenomenon wasn't even thought of or even accepted as a realistic possibility. That's the key. But it actually happened. And so I fear, I mean, what I fear will happen is that, or expect to happen in the case of uh, these graduates suddenly being mobilized in politics, is that uh, they're in for a terrible series of disappointments. When classical forms of political behavior that have already reemerged in the shifts, quasi-Leninist shifts of policy in the Labour Party on Brexit and other issues, become dramatic. I mean, it would be ironic to the last degree, it would be an exquisite irony, would it not, if what came out of momentum was a neo-Blairite party, which shifted not only on Brexit and became the voice, essentially, of uh, the Bank of England or, <laughs> or the Treasury. If that happened more broadly across the field, they'd then be in a kind of tough spot. On the one hand, they've already alienated their much of their traditional working-class vote. But they'd also, I, I would alienate large sections of momentum and of the new party they've created. How are they going to do it? So it's not obvious that this walking on water period will last all that long, though it may last long enough to change British politics irreversibly for a long time. The logic of events is a hard Brexit or even a crash Brexit. That's, I think, true at the moment. It could be reversed not Brexit itself, I think it would be very difficult to reverse Brexit because that would mean another referendum, which wouldn't obviously or self-evidently be won by the Remainers. They all seem very certain of that. But if there is a crash Brexit, it could most likely be followed by an election because the May government, if it continued up to that point, would carry the can for that catastrophe. And certainly a crash Brexit, which had not been prepared for, would have many extremely destabilizing and negative results. So if somebody would carry the can, it would be the government that had led to that situation, and Corbyn could then come to power. And that would then be faced with a rather dire, and high, or at least highly volatile, economic and financial situation, maybe not only as affecting Britain, but, but larger ripples throughout the financial system in Europe and elsewhere. And so quite apart from anything else, that would make it very difficult for them to deliver on most of their promises. And so what they would do then, whatever that might be, would either be to persist in their radical policy, a bit like Mitterrand did back in France and so on in the 80s, um, or back off. The first would probably have self-defeating effects. The second would be terribly disillusioning to the 600,000 supporters of, uh, of this radical new government. The new politics would be extinguished, snuffed out, probably in months, by a rapid and radical eruption of a traditional financial crisis, they would then be left with nothing. And that, I think, is, uh, I mean, it's almost a part of the definition of populism, that it, what it aims to achieve is, in many respects, at least, unachievable. 
either in general or in the circumstances in which it proposes to achieve it. That's what I actually, at the moment, unless something else happens, it's what I expect to happen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So if we broaden it out a bit then, you yeah. touched on religion mm. and you've written a lot about mm. not just the revival of religion, but the overlap between religion and what's ostensibly its opposite, yes. which is a kind of secular faith. Either science or politics so, or a mixture of Yeah, both. science, politics and, and a secular faith in, yes. in progress. Yes. And you see that even in some of this kind of university-inspired education. That's there it. is the people who are either anti-religion or simply want to dismiss it as a... Or really fund it, fully privatise it. So it's, it's got the status in society, let's say, preferences among ethnic cuisines. You go Hindu, I'll go, I'll go Jewish. You go Muslim, I'll be Confucian. So it's not a factor of human conflict. So for people who see it like that, nonetheless, some of their behaviour, as you've written, has the characteristics of a religious mindset. You've talked about some of the cultish aspects of the new politics, not just in this country, but around the world. And then there's also... These other odd phenomena of our time, this kind of new apocalypticism, mm. this almost sort of hankering for the the epic event that's going to make sense of this mm. chaotic world, and then a kind of blind faith in technology mm. too. We've had Yuval Harari on this podcast, and he's talked very much about what he calls dataism as this mm. kind of new mm. cult of mm. information as the new god and so on. You've written about it for a long time, but we're getting more and more exaggerated versions of this now, it, it feels like. So the people who, for whom technology is the new cult, their faith is as sort of wild and unchallenged as any religious well, bad fundamentalism. Ideas, yeah. Bad ideas don't evolve into better ideas. They usually mutate into worse ideas. And, and that's what's been happening, I think, recently in regard to a quasi-religious faith, for example, in technology. So back in the 80s, to give you an example... I met some of the cryogenicists of the time whose route to immortality was to have themselves frozen. How long, I asked them, would it be? And they were more modest than the present ones before the technology advanced to the point at which they could be defrosted. How long would it be? And at the time, many of them said, well, not more than a century. Now they talk about five or 10 or 15 years. But So I said, well, if it's a century... You know, you've got to think of what's happened in the last century in the world. We've had um, two world wars. We've had uh, Nazism. And it's one of the points I was trying to sort of get across to them is that they were assuming virtual immortality in the institutions around them, whereby their frozen cadavers would remain intact in the property, in the legal structures, the property structure, the economic relationships which they'd invested them in in the 1980s. And they looked, first of all, utterly blankly at me because it never occurred to them to doubt this, that the United States would still be there, that there wouldn't have been even a nuclear war or some other disaster or what would later be global warming or whatever could have affected that. When I've described these projects as absurd, uh, projects of technological immortality, which are a kind of extreme form of faith that technology can bring what religion used to bring, in this case, immortality. I don't necessarily mean that the technologies will always remain unfeasible or even too expensive. Uh, who knows? What I mean is that the contingencies of human history were recurrently defeated. 
that there will be a war, there will be an economic crash, there will be another economic crash or, or more than one, etc. So that resting your faith on these technologies presupposes a prior faith in the extraordinary and actually historically almost unheard of resilience and survival traits of the institutions. If they disappear, then you're gone with them. But now, of course, they've gone further, and so you have the director of Google, Ray Kurzweil. Uh, he's a, an immortalist, but the form of immortality involves projecting the contents of a conscious mind or brain into cyberspace where it can be... In other words, not just longevity he's after, but immortality. And there's a clearly religious element in that through the idea of the singularity, which is your apocalyptic event. All the forms of human knowledge will suddenly come together and bang, there'll be a completely new understanding of the world. And that might also occur around about the same time that organic human intelligence or organic human brain melts and or fuses in some way with artificial intelligence. Now, what I've said about that, both in regard to Kurzweil and later in regard to Harari's books, I like the first book very much, I like the second book, but not as much, is that to talk of this in terms of the emergence of homo deus, of a, of a kind of a superhuman entity, is a fundamental error of a kind of humanism that Harari is generally rightly very sceptical of, because what it assumes is, and he says things like, uh, humanity sets itself great collective projects. Humanity does that. Well, that's a view which I think comes from within monotheistic traditions which assume that humanity is a some kind of collective moral agent pursuing its redemption through history. But if you were a Greek polytheist or a Hindu or a Taoist or or even a Buddhist or let alone an animist or, or whatever, you wouldn't assume that. And the actual reality isn't is not that humanity does anything, actually. The reality in, in respect of these new technologies is that they're taken up by groups in the world ranging from obviously governments but also perhaps more importantly big corporations, criminal organizations, terrorists and cults like the Aum cult in Japan. They're taken up by a variety of different contending groups and so many of them motivated by apocalyptic ideology. They sort of fight it out. That's what really happens. So even if these new technologies come about, then even if there are species of post-humans or emerge uh, Blade Runner type virtual or other species emerge from these. There'll be a whole wide variety of different types and uses and they'll develop and contend with one another in a whole variety of different ways. And history will, human history actually, will not be terminated or ended. It will simply continue just as it did. And this, I think, is this kind of um, approach which would have seemed natural perhaps to Edward Gibbon or Machiavelli or uh, maybe even Hume in some of his moods is simply too unredemptive for the contemporary secular mind. So the background of all these extreme forms of scientific mythology, the, the use of science as a vehicle for myth, and the mingling of scientific myth with political programs or programs that are political without really admitting it, like some of the programs of the Silicon Valley billionaires who want to shift resources to what they regard as not, not dealing with poverty or people who are suffering now, but to the threats they see to the entire species coming from artificial intelligence. Well, it's a political project, even though they won't admit it. And some of them, of course, have aligned themselves with Trump, and uh, at least temporarily. They are against a background, I think, which has two contending, a kind of pincer movement of two things. One is the building up in the act in the world of very serious and sometimes intractable problems, which may be remote geographically if you live in Britain or America or most of Europe, but because 
the world is interconnected as much as it is, not only by media, but also by weather and by currency movements and financial movements. Those intractable difficulties, which in many cases involve the re-emergence in new and technologically perhaps innovative or novel forms of things that were supposed to be atavistic and fading away, like religion. Those intractable problems, they infect and destabilise the lives and worldview of many people, against the background of which the faith of practically everyone who thinks they have no religion is a belief in meliorism. And meliorism is the view not that things can be improved, obviously everybody thinks that things can be improved in the ancient world, but the, but the pre-meliorist thinkers of the ancient world thought that improvement, first of all it happened in particular forms of life, it wasn't universal, but secondly what was gained was always later lost. In other words, the accumulation of social and political advances over long periods of time, even of the lifetime of the human species, or at least if it's when it was consciously historical, it actually wasn't a feature of um, the views of the world of um, pre-Christian Europe or Buddhist or Hindu India or Taoism or even... I mean, they had views of history, that philosophies of history, but didn't involve this kind of species-wide meliorism. It's a myth, in my view. I mean, that is, it's the ruling myth by which, as I say, all of those minds that imagine they have no religion, it's actually the, the religion or the myth that they live by. And when there are so many contradictory facts in the world which seem to contradict it, so the, it was believed religion in its violent and malignant and poisonous form will fade away. It hasn't it's come back in worse forms than ever. Protectionism, nationalism, the targeting of minorities is going to, going to fade away. It hasn't. Anti-Semitism is going to be, it hasn't. It's come back, including in uh, Corbinite labour. The recurrence of these old evils, these familiar old evils, which were supposed to be at least slowly fading away, has not happened, and the opposite has happened in many cases. Or to give the example, which is within all of our lives here, kind of a very vivid example, 20 years ago, it would have been a, a misanthropic fantasy of the most incredible science fiction kind to suggest that the world's leading democracy would rehabilitate and reintroduce and renormalize torture. No one would have believed it. Absolutely. It has, in fact, happened. It's in the system now. It's in popular entertainment. It has been substantially renormalized. Unthinkable, but it has, in fact... So that produces a really intense cognitive dissonance in large numbers of people. And particularly, I think, among these graduates, if you think of the graduates propelling Corbyn to power, they won't actually feel the sharp end of this <laughs> cognitive dissonance until there's been a period of Corbyn in power. Because until that happens, they can say, if you speak to any of them, you say, well, this is what happened in these previous periods of revolution. Well, that's all in the past. Won't happen now because it's very different. We're purer, we're cleverer, we know more. Well, you know, they don't. Uh, they're as ignorant as the uh, 1930s graduates were who were the, the smartest, the cleverest, in many ways from the best schools who flocked to um, communism. They were very largely deluded, were they not? We've moved, as it were, from the local to the almost the cosmic. cosmic yeah. <laughs> um, as these discussions. Yeah, it's, and it's fantastic. But somewhere in between those two questions, between Corbyn and the singularity, <laughs> there is the question about yeah. the future of democracy. Liberal democracy. Liberal democracy, representative democracy. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that's had a great hundred years yeah. that was meant to have ended history and didn't. Yeah. And without assuming, certainly I would agree with you, that what comes next will inevitably be better. Could, yeah. could be better, could be worse. Or could, just a continuation. Or continuation, or, or slightly different. Yeah. 
But do you have that sense you're in this populist mm. moment, there will be populists of left and right coming to power and then hitting these hard realities. Mm. The realities will lead to profound disappointments. There will be some remarkable successes. Mm. There will be more grinding failures. More That's failures, how yeah. politics works. Mm. But there will also be, and not because there'll be some kind of fantastic e-democracy in which we, we do all of this using technology, that won't happen either. But that we could be coming to the end of a political period where the thing that we think of as democracy is getting close to being done. Yeah. And who knows what will come next? But does it have that feel to you? Not yeah. not in a sort of Gramscian sense yeah. of this is the morbid moment, but just it's tired. Yeah. It's unresponsive in many ways. Its responses are these kind of reflex responses. Yeah. And can't solve. Its institutions yeah. are... They're not, yeah, they're gridlocked. They're not hollowed out. They're, they're full of stuff, but it's it's kind of clotted. They're not able to do very much. So what, if we look not... Yeah right the way to the distant horizon and not in front of our noses, but the sort of 10, 15, 20 year horizon. Do you see, a, a, as you described it, lots of different possibilities, but democracy itself starting to fracture? What I see principally happening, it's not that the ideas of democratic legitimacy, the idea that a modern state has to be ultimately legitimated by its contribution to the well-being of its subjects or citizens. I don't think that will be challenged. I mean, in a sense, legitimism has vanished in the world. There's no such thing. Even Xi Jinping, he legitimates his quasi-imperial rule and the highly authoritarian society that he and state that he represents in terms of advancing prosperity, in terms of the betterment of the Chinese people. So there won't be a reversion to feudalism or legitimism or anything. But what is highly likely to happen is already happening in Europe is a move from liberal to illiberal democracy. And, of course, illiberal democracy didn't come from nowhere. It goes back at least as far as Rousseau and has also been found in Islamist forms, which is to say, yes, well, we're democratic and we appeal to some entity, the people, the nation, the faith, the religious community, the, the sacral community, whatever it is, and we embody that. So illiberal democracy in Hungary or Poland, quite strongly established, and, of course, in Russia too, is a type of democracy, actually, because at least in some of its manifestations, the results of elections can't be predicted. Maybe they can in Russia because it's so tightly controlled, but in Iran that wasn't always so, and it isn't irrevocably or permanently so in Poland or Hungary. So you can have a type of democracy which leads to changes of government, but in which the traditional association with liberal values has been attenuated or even rejected. And that seems to me to be a, a very important point. And looking back on this, this, I think, is an important moment of, again, of myth shattering, which is that the political culture is suffused in America and Britain and, and many other parts of the world with what I regard as a myth, which is a kind of vulgar Marxism, which applied to some extent in the 19th century, which is that the embourgeoisement of society is a quintessentially liberal phenomenon. I mean, after how many times I've heard this, as over hundreds, it seems like thousands actually, but at least dozens, talking to a variety of different groups, political groups, business groups, any kinds of groups. And if I said something, I was saying in the early 90s, China will not become a liberal society. It will not become a liberal democracy. It will not become a liberal market economy. It'll become a capitalist economy, a state economy, a mixed economy, a hybrid economy. Fantastic achievements are possible, but it will not become any of these things. Well, why not? It'll produce, everyone said, every single person, a bourgeoisie. And this middle class will demand, as the middle class always have demanded, more freedom, more blah, blah, blah. Well, if you actually look at the 20th century history of Europe, 
the middle classes very often didn't behave like that. They very often threw their weight behind fascism and authoritarianism and many other things. It's kind of par for the course. If you look at the worst examples, pretty well the whole of the German middle class was prostate or actively complicit in the rise of in, in Nazism when it arrived. Who resisted it? Uh, a few right-wing Catholics, some Jewish groups, a handful of Protestants, a few unyielding peasants and so on, and some communists before they were handed over to, uh, to Stalin. It's simply not historically accurate. There's no reason, actually, beyond certain possibly semi-coincidental links in the 19th century to think that bourgeoisification and uh, liberalization go hand in hand. And that's actually what we may now be seeing, partly in China, where it seems from what anybody can divine, Xi Jinping is actually very, very popular. And is it really true, outside of a few professors and journalists and writers and artists, is it really true that the more people become middle class in their material lifestyle, that, that they will want something beyond Singapore, say? Will they? A lot of people would give their eye teeth for Singapore. And of course, the other side of that is that in the liberal West, many of the phenomena, and this is a sort of perception which I know is common in China now, many of the values that used to be associated with liberal democracy are being changed or altered or revised or amended or abandoned so that actually free expression, whatever that means, is no longer a predominant value in lots of institutions. Actually, traditional liberal values in the West are being curtailed for a variety of reasons. I mean, for example, the, the middle class, the embourgeoisified radicals who support Corbyn are not noteworthy on the whole for being unyielding defenders of liberal free speech, are they? So, supposing that what they want, people with a certain income, a certain lifestyle, a certain career structure, what they want is um, a mix of consumerism and orthodoxy together with resurgent nationalism and a sense of belonging in a coherent civilization which is embodied in a, a strong state. Suppose that's what they want. So I think one of the big myths which is being tested to destruction now is the myth of the liberal bourgeoisie. It still animates not just academia, but public discourse, even policymaking. Policymaking towards Russia and China has, to some extent, been based on those kind of expectations. And even business investment Banks and others, they say, or at least this is a rational, well, it's going to turn into a... No, it isn't. Or then they say, well, if it doesn't become a bourgeois democracy, it will fall back dramatically in economic growth, but you can't really have an innovative economy, economy without liberal freedom. Well, go back to um, David Hume's essay on uh, absolute government. He points out that actually it's been periods of absolute government in the history that he knew then. What times a very rapid commercial and, and, and technical advance because society is not all of one piece. And also... States are actually very often at the back of high-level technological innovation, which is one of the reasons that China is a long way ahead of Western countries in other respects. These phenomena of populism and the eruption of religiosity in politics and science are all expressions, if you like, in different ways and in different contexts of the way in which an inherited a view which has shaped the liberal mind or which has shaped the secular mind, inherited from the 19th century positivism, then later from the century of democratic success, which uh, was the 20th century, are being challenged by events. And the result is not the emergence of new types of thought, but simply an acute experience of cognitive distance, which, as we know, does not typically produce realistic thought, but rather the opposite. Thank you very much to John Gray for covering just about everything. And thank um, you, David, for very good questions. It enabled me to do it. <laughs> if there was a bit of background noise here, it's because the LRB stationary cupboard turns out to be closer to the toilets here than we, <laughs> we realised. Love you, thought. <laughs>
We'll be back with a regular panel next week, picking up on some slightly more immediate events than the end of the world, but who knows what will come first. Do join us then for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.